Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. Welcome to the 29th episode of the Pulling Tart Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Kuhn. I really appreciate everybody tuning in. If you like the episode, please subscribe so you don't miss any more episodes. Please share it on social media so that your friends can listen as well. I would also love to see some more ratings or comments. Hint, hint, folks. Make sure you give me a follow on Twitter at... It's R.A. Kuhn, that's I-T-S-R-A-C-O-O-N, so that you don't miss out on any news about the podcast. I'd like to welcome on a very special guest, Benjamin Hill. You all will probably know Ben from his blogging that he does about his travels to each MILB team. Can't wait to chat with Ben Hill right after this break. Ben, welcome on to the Pulling Tart Podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to chat with me. Um, first question, do you agree that you have the best job in the world? <laughs> um, I don't disagree. Um, you know, I think like like any job, the reality of doing it is a lot less awesome or glamorous as the idea from the outside. You know, like, I'm not equating myself to being, like, a famous rock star, but, you know, a rock star is the equivalent of, like, living the dream. Mm -hmm. But if you're a rock star, you've also constantly on tour, lose your sense of reality, going from place to place to place, don't know who your real friends are anymore, spend, you know, wonder if you're getting ripped off all the time. And while it is admittedly probably awesome, uh, I think a lot of rock stars might be like, you know, I'm sick of being a rock star. I'm not saying all that applies to me, but I'm just saying that uh, through the years I would hear people say, you're living a dream or this is literally the best job in the world, uh, going to minor league baseball stadiums. And especially because it took me a long time to establish this job and it was yeah. like kind of a lot of anxiety to kind of make it a real thing, a lot of stress. Um, when people first started to tell me that, I'd say, no, 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 it's not, it's not the best. It's actually not that great. I'm stressed out all the time and it feels like a house of cards that could collapse at any moment. Okay. But then as the years went on, I'm like, hey man, like this is your job and you are doing it and you want to project positivity and you're doing this job because at its core it's something you thought was worth fighting for and worth doing. So this has been your very long answer saying, yeah, come around to that idea that <laughs> yes, this is the best job in the world. It just took me a long time to get there because uh, the reality is always a lot messier than the perception. Sure, sure. Um, so I reached out to you because you retweeted an article that you wrote back in 2013, um, and it's about Dakota Backus, a.k.a. the White Wall Ninja, and he got called up to the big leagues this week by the Nationals. And when I worked for Beloit in 2013... Um, I remember Dakota Backus um, and the White Wall Ninja well, and um, 
<laughs> Very entertaining to say the least. Can you kind of just discuss that article uh, you wrote for MILB.com back in 2013 on the road, Beloit's White Wall Ninja? Yeah, sure. I mean, and also, I'd have to say, whether it's this episode or elsewhere, I, I, I'd be interested in hearing you, know, you and, and more other people who are around it. Yeah. Uh, around the White Wall Ninja on a more regular basis, you know, I'd love to hear their stories. I, I think maybe I'll go back and now that Dakota's made to the majors seven years later, maybe I can kind of revisit the White Wall Ninja story. But for me, uh, you know, what I do exploring America through minor league baseball, I'm always looking for interesting stories when I go places. And especially back then, 2013, you know, my itineraries were jam-packed. I'd only be in a place for one day. Yep. I'd have a lot of uncertainty about, like, what I was going to write about, any lead that I could get I wanted to pursue. And it was actually some visiting uh, Wisconsin Timber Rattlers uh, staffers who had visited the Timber Rattlers were playing in Beloit, and they showed up for the game. Uh, Ann Malika, I believe was her name, uh, took a picture of the White Wall Ninja, and she still works with the Timber Rattlers. Okay. Uh, in creative uh, photography realm. But she was one of the ones who was there. She took the picture. I don't know if the story would be able to exist without that picture, so shout out to Ann. Um, so anyway, through the, it wasn't through the Beloit Snappers that I learned about the White Wall Ninja. Uh, Dakota, you know, hiding during games and, and camouflage. Uh, it was through the Timber Rattler. So when I got to Beloit, I was like, hey, can I interview this Dakota pitcher? Yeah. Uh, Dakota Bacchus, can I? Because I was like, this is amazing. And, you know, at that point, that, that's seven years ago, and a lot has changed in my career, but I've been doing it long enough at that point to know that that was not something that really happened much at all or, or ever. Right. And I was just so stoked by the story and the fact that he wanted to talk to me uh, so openly and goofily he was like 22 at the time yeah you know he was like yeah I'll talk to you and the, I love that story you know I don't think I did a particularly awesome job writing it up but I contextualized it I explained what it was and uh, it's a really funny pretty short interview with Dakota as the White Wall Ninja you know sometimes referring to himself in the first person and sometimes in the third person <laughs> um, and it's just like a really funny and quintessentially minor league story. So through the years, um, you know, I had a, uh, an insert set with Tops in their pro debut set, mm-hmm. um, where I, there as a Ben's Biz insert focused on cards that I was able to pick. I would curate this insert set. So the very first year I did that, 2017, you know, I had to make sure there was a Dakota Backus White Wall Ninja baseball card. Oh yeah. And, um, so look that up. Yeah, probably buy it for a dollar or so, but it's <laughs> awesome. He's got his own baseball, a tops baseball card, White Wall Ninja. Nice. Um, that, and that was the kind of story. And this has been something that's happened to me a lot throughout my career. Is I write a story, and in my mind, it's a viral sensation, and the whole world loves it, and everyone's like, "This is great." But I wrote it, and a few people were like, "Ha ha, that's hilarious." A few other outlets picked it up and just cannibalized my work the way the internet works, and said, "Ha ha, this is hilarious." But it just didn't really go anywhere. But you know, like any job, you just stick with it. And through the years, you know, people would see Dakota, you know, because he he grounded out in the minor leagues. I crossed paths with him without speaking to him. But I remember being in Potomac, Harrisburg, or Reading, or maybe even Fresno. Mm-hmm. And all through the years, it was like, wow, the White Wall Ninja is still pitching. And, and and even though he's not even hit his thirtieth birthday, um, you know, twenty thirteen is a long time ago when you're in the minor yeah. leagues. So. When he was called up last week, and I found out about it through uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue, mm-hmm. great podcast, Twitter, sure. um, friends of mine, 
uh, just two good dudes who do a lot of good for the game of baseball, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, they really had seized on to the White Wall Ninja story. And so they tagged, when he was uh, called up, they tagged me and they promoted the story. And, and I felt like a real sense of joy. Sure. And it's not that I know Dakota, but just that, you know, I stuck it out in my own way. I'm still writing about these ridiculous things. I'm still this guy in minor league baseball writing about the White Wall Ninjas of the world. And Dakota Backus, he. He, he uh, slugged it out. He grounded it out. You know, yeah. such a long time in the minors, and he made it. So I don't know the guy personally, but I was like, hell yeah, White Wall Ninja, major leaguer. I felt genuinely happy. Heck yeah, man. So from my point of view, um, I was in the... So at that point, I think I was the director of food and beverage, which was not my expertise. I went on to be in the marketing department for every team I worked for. Um, and... But I was I dabbled in sales as well, and our director of sales at the time was was like, "If you sell an outfield sign, tell them not to go with a white sign. Like that's you know the ball's going to get lost, you know all you know in the background of the sign and whatnot. And for whatever reason, almost all of our sponsors that year wanted a white sign." So we ended up having like an abnormal amount of white signs, and that group of pitchers in the bullpen that year. Well, first of all, the team was really good, and you have you have fun when the team is winning a lot. And they were just a bunch of clowns. The bullpen was just bunch of clowns and then so they noticed there was a lot of white signs dakota put the the white you know face mask on and would inch closer throughout the game to the other team's bullpen and then he would steal a drink of water from their cooler and then work his way back like just inching along the outfield wall um and it happened all the time and but until one day a guy hit a double off the wall and it hit him right about 6 inches to the to the right of his head and of course then he flinched and the umpire the umpire just like paused the game once once the ball got got to a base or whatnot back to the pitcher and told Dakota to go back to the bullpen and the next day you hear sanctions coming from Oakland saying like they're not going to put up with any any fun things in the bullpen basically they are to sit there until they are told to warm up and that kind of stuff and I think about two weeks later if I recall correctly um, Dakota Bacchus was traded to the Nationals organization um, and then he grinded it out from there. So, you think being the White Wall Ninja had anything to do with the Oakland Athletics uh, letting him go? Uh, if I had to guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I'm just glad that he grinded it out and he he made it to the majors. I mean, not everybody can say that clearly. So, um. So, Ben, do you remember writing about me particularly in your blog? I do. Um, I mean, now, uh, you know, we are, you know, you're communicating with me as, as Bobby, but I remember when I first came across you as an individual, 
kind of someone who's always writing about the weird side of minor league baseball or the quirky or the eccentric. Uh, yeah, I just remember seeing that there was a guy who now works in minor league baseball named uh, R.A. Coon, like Raccoon, and I was like, yeah. this is one of the best names I've ever seen in the front office. So I don't remember what I wrote. I thought about trying to look it up before we spoke, but I was like, no, nah, I remember that. Uh, I don't remember how much I wrote, but especially then, you know, uh, now basically Twitter is what the blog used to be. Uh-huh. So so much of uh, the older Ben's biz blog posts were things that would now be on Twitter. Uh, but just these little nuggets of things I found around minor league baseball, I, I definitely remember writing something about you related to the fact that you were uh, the raccoon of the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, it was just like, do I have the best name in uh, MILB as far as MILB front office members go? And then you also said it was a close race between that and Ty Cobb, who apparently was working in Bowling Green, I think. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, he was Lexington. Oh, Lexington. Uh, Lexington. Ty Cobb worked a lot, of, a lot of years in Lexington. He is now... Um, out of minor league baseball quite recently, but he spent the better part of a decade. Ty Cobb spent the better part of a decade in Lexington. Okay. Wow. So you've obviously written a lot about MILB rebrands. Um, so what has been your favorite minor league baseball rebrand? You know, I, I, like so many things with minor league baseball, I could change my answer on, you know, by the day. Sure. Um, I think definitely one of them, you know, through the years, uh, was the El Paso Chihuahuas. Okay, um, yeah. I think of that one just because, you know, there's all these kind of benchmarks throughout the last decade plus, you know, going back to, like, Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, when the reaction was always like, they, they can't actually choose that as a name. <laughs> and things just got increasingly weird. And so now... Yeah. You know, as we are in the 2020 season or the would be 2020 season, and we talk about the El Paso Chihuahuas, and we think, oh yeah, the El Paso Chihuahuas. It, it barely causes one to bat an eye. Uh, but that was just in 2014 that that rebrand. Um, mm-hmm. Well, they've been the, the the placeholder Tucson Padres before that. Okay. And before that, they were the Portland Beavers. Uh, but I remember Chihuahuas was one of the name the team finalists and. I remember just saying, like, haha, they won't actually be the Chihuahuas, and that was the general uh, consensus. And sure. they were the Chihuahuas, and there was, like, you know, the typical cycle incredulousness, outrage, grudging acceptance, and then even love. And seeing that play out in El Paso with a name that was truly, like, risky at the time mm-hmm. is one that I, I always have looked at as a benchmark of, you know, the direction that the industry has gone in terms of branding and how the Chihuahuas were. Not a super early example, but one of the more extreme examples of, you know, quote unquote, normalizing something that up until that point had just been like, no way, no way a team names themselves that. But even talking about it now, I'm like, what? Such wildness. Who cares? It's not a big deal at all. It doesn't even seem that wild anymore. Right. But I, I, I like it for that reason because it was a big deal at the time. And sure. they took a risk and it really paid off. And I just like that branding. I like that look. I like that color scheme. I like that ballpark. I like the way that team operates. I like that city. I like Mexico. So it's all just okay. It's all tied up in a nice package. Sure, I'm sure you've seen the many social media posts asking if Beloit should rebrand when they move into sure, their I've new seen, ballpark. I've seen a number of those. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you think that Beloit should rebrand from the Snappers? Um, 
On one level, 100% yes. Okay. You know, rebrand can be a different thing. A rebrand or, you know, you know what it's called, refresh or new logo. One thing I will say unequivocally, I think they should completely, if they keep the snapper's name, they should 100% uh, rebrand in the sense of a different logo, logo yeah. probably new color scheme, just a completely uh, updated, fresh look. I mean, and I'm sure they will do at least that much. I don't mm-hmm. have any inside info on that, but I can guarantee you they're not going into a new, a new stadium in the year 2021 with that logo. Um, yeah. I like the snapper's name and I like uh, you know the turtle uh, as a logo, but you look at that turtle, it looks pretty old and worn out. It looks kind of geriatric. Yeah. It's, I've thought for years, like, look, you, you, they need to update this logo. I do like the snapper's name well enough that, um, and I think it's still marketable enough that I still think like that's one that would be okay to keep. Mm-hmm. I don't know what direction they'll go, but if they rebrand, more power to them. Like, you know, the, the team tags me in a lot of their Twitter posts, and you get the same people—not the same people, but the same responses. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'll never attend a game again. <laughs> you know, just look at these idiots. They have something great. Why change it? And I'm always like, it's it's as it's as if people don't understand that minor league baseball teams are businesses that need to make money and especially in the case of Beloit mm-hmm. a team and market that was just on the verge of no longer existing sure. you know, because of yeah. that ballpark in particular and so when people say like why would you change why would you change it it's perfect I'm like do you realize how close you were to oblivion right if you ran any other business so close to the edge of not existing you change your business model sure you know if you ran a sandwich stop, shop and only two people came in a day you know that's not a good business. Even if the two people who come in say never change anything, I love these sandwiches. Like great, but I need to appeal to a lot right. of people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I did. I did interview Quint Studer, who will be the new owner, and he helped get that new ballpark in Beloit. Um, so it, that was certainly insightful talking to him about that process. Um, he didn't mention a rebrand when we talked, but. Um, I do. I I'm. I agree with you. Like the snappers as a whole um, is pretty recognizable in the Midwest. Um, so, but yes, I do believe they need to change the logo at least that much. So, yeah, and just strictly business, strictly merchandise. Oh yeah. Um, strictly revenue. I mean, come on. Like the name of the game is to make money. I love baseball. I love it as a you know as a as an asset in the community. I love it as a a business that can provide a lot of community services, mm-hmm. but you've got to still be oriented on the bottom line, and uh, you know that's gonna that's gonna drive sales. And like, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just find it after so many examples of rebrands being successful, I just find it so tedious that people still make the same arguments. But then I realize they're not following the industry as a whole; they're just in their own market, and the yep. only reference point they have for minor league baseball is their own minor league baseball team. Sure. And so they just kind of give me re- reactionary opinions that only have anything to do with their own limited experience. And that's fine. That's the nature of humanity. But um, it's become this kind of ironic thing is that fans or teams, in order to excel, need to actively disregard uh, the majority of their fan base a lot of yes. times. Because the fan base literally doesn't know. That sounds so condescending, but I, I think it's tourism oh, yeah. of the industry and not just this industry, but a lot of industries probably. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um while we're on that topic about uh, what minor league baseball teams mean to communities, 
what are your thoughts? Um, you're kind of, I mean, you work for MILB, um, so what are your thoughts about potentially getting rid of 40 minor league teams across the country and what that means for those communities? I mean, as someone who's been to every single minor league ballpark um, and has built a career on the premise of exploring America through minor league baseball, yep. of course I want there to be minor league baseball in as many towns as possible, um, you know, bar none. Um, it's been a tough thing to cover, one, because you know, well, I'm writing for the official website of minor league baseball, and uh, that website is run by major league baseball, yep. minor league baseball is... Uh, in the online sphere, you know, minor league baseball is a client of major league baseball. So, um, you know, with that being the relationship, it's not something we can really cover. And as an official website anyway, we're basically covering things once they become 100% fact and not kind of speculation and not kind of here's how things are looking. So for someone of uh, my job and, you know, my interest and my passion, it's been kind of tough to be on the sidelines as this is developing and to kind of have a, you know, more limited voice just given the nature of um, you know how the website is situated in the larger sports landscape that has been difficult um, but yeah I want there to be as much minor league baseball as possible but I also do recognize that um, you know this industry and this arrangement and this relationship you know between major and minor league baseball it's subject to change just like anything else in life and while I want there to be as many teams as possible 160 is not some sacred number. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, it's on a stone tablet commanded by God. It's not like the entirety of Major League and Minor League Baseball's history together with affiliations has always been 160 teams. Right. That changed over time. That's just a number that we've arrived at, uh, I don't know exactly when, but things have been pretty stable for the last you know, three decades or so. So within that stability, it became kind of like fact that that's how many teams there are. Sure. So I... I do understand that you can look at this big, sprawling 116-14 league arrangement and say, okay, how can we adjust this? How can we change this? What is working? What is not? That's the nature of any relationship. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I try to look at the gray areas, the nuanced areas, and I'll cover it as much as I can once, uh, you know, we have a lot more clarity on it. Sure. But, my goodness, we went into 2020 with that being as about as big as the minor league baseball stories you can imagine, and then COVID-19 happens, and then all of a sudden the PBA, the professional baseball agreement, the relationship that dictates the number of teams and affiliations and all that stuff. Now that's been on the back burner. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a kind of crazy thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm just going to stay positive to the whole thing and just know that no matter how much or how little the landscape changes, that um, there will still be minor league baseball and that if we lose teams, I do think um, there will be, whether it's, um, you know, it's through Major League Baseball or not, I do think that a lot of the places that might lose a, a team will find another way to have baseball in some way, shape, or form. And yeah. that it's not just going to disappear. So I really do have a longer-term positive perspective that um, we're still going to see a lot of baseball in a lot of these towns, even if the specifics change. Okay. And everyone's just kind of learning what's happening as uh, we trudge through this endless summer and season that isn't. Right, right. Um, so clearly, clearly, you said you've been to every minor league uh, stadium. So, what has been your all-time favorite minor league baseball promotion? Yeah, yeah it's a, a common question, and uh, I really I hate to always kind of give the same same answer, uh, but it's one when I'm just 
when I think about it, I, I still come down to this. I'm coming up on the three-year anniversary of this. Uh, you got to check the date. It's very soon. Um, but the favorite promotion I ever witnessed was the uh, Eclipse in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, oh. Three years ago when there was the National League Eclipse, um, there was a number of, there were a number of Miley teams that were in the path of totality as the Eclipse moved across the country. So, the, you know, the first team, based on, like, the time that the Eclipse hit, was Salem Powers of Volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest. And mm-hmm. as the Eclipse moved across the country, you know, in kind of a southeastern direction. Uh, there were several other teams in the past of totality that all had, like, games with, uh, you know, built-in Eclipse delays and that kind of thing. So I planned a road trip in the Carolinas and ended up in the Columbia, South Carolina that day and watched the Eclipse with, you know, team logo <laughs> Eclipse glasses. Nice. Um, with 9,000 people and, you know, just to watch, like, four innings of the game, totally normal. And then just, like, ladies and gentlemen, there'll be a break in the action. Please put on your glasses and have to experience... Uh, something so amazing, a phenomenon that I've never experienced before with that many people, and then to have the game resume, and it felt like a dream. Yeah. Did that happen? Did did we all just witness it? (laughs) Because then things seemed like normal, and it was hot, you know, it was South Carolina in August, so after the eclipse half the crowd was like, all right, we got got what we came here for. Right. um, That was just so remarkable to me, and it's a little shaky, but I, I... uh, took a video. It's on. Uh, put it on Facebook on minor league baseball MILB's uh, Facebook Live, and it's an amazing video. Got a great response, and uh, just to see that happen in real time at a ballpark to go from total daylight to pitch black, and then back up to daylight in the span of like whatever it was, eleven or twelve minutes. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that does sound pretty awesome. Uh, so, what has been your top three minor league baseball teams that you have visited? I, I know you've been to them all, and it, this may be a difficult question, but I want to know the top three. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it, in a certain sense, it's an impossible. Question. Right, right. You know, I could change my answer to that a million different ways. Um, so, top three, you know, I could change it in all sorts of ways. But yeah, you know, I was raving about El, El Paso and the Chihuahuas rebranding. I, I went to that ballpark uh, for actually the, the ballpark opened a little late due to construction delays, and I went to their second ever game and. Um, got a chance to go back again. Well, that was just last season. Okay. Track of time. Um, but that's one of my favorite ballparks uh, in, in the country, uh, Southwest University Field. Um, so I think going to see the Chihuahuas, especially that first time, it was so fresh. And uh, like the, the city was really kind of amazed by what they had. Yeah. Because they, they're big minor league baseball in El Paso before. They're pretty successful minor league baseball of a different era. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, you know, people didn't understand what this new team and was going to be and just being around that sort of excitement which was a similar excitement I felt in Amarillo last year okay. where a community was just kind of blown away uh, by what minor league baseball is now compared to their previous associations with it you know decades prior um, so big shout out to Amarillo South Group as well um, another you know we well I guess before we went on the air you know we were talking about being Pennsylvania guys and mm-hmm. um, you know so I kind of have to pick you know, if I'm going to say minor league experiences, why don't I go before I was even professional the first minor league game I ever went to, which was uh, Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Red Barons at okay. County Stadium uh, in their inaugural season of 1989, uh, which is my first minor league experience ever. I didn't even know that was the, the team's first season, but my grandparents had gotten a house in the Poconos, and okay. um, so we would visit them, and it was like, hey, let's go see this minor league team. And as a Phillies fan, I was just uh, – the, the 
the ballpark at that time was a replica of Veterans Stadium. So it had artificial turf and the same dimensions as the vet. Oh, and yeah. I was a Phillies fan, and I was just like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a mini vet in, in uh, well, technically in Music, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. you know, the team is Frank Wolfsburg. Um, so that was, I had to put that up there as a top three ballpark I visited because it was you know, my very first time. And, uh, you know, I love Reading in that way as well. Another great great ballpark. Yeah. Um, And then shout-out to all the weirdo places or the kind of down-on-their-luck places uh, or the now-defunct places, you know, the the places that uh, are no longer with us. Um, You know, I kind of look at Beloit in that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, it could be a new ballpark. Sure. uh, um, Pullman, that's how you say it, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, you know, that, that's the kind of place I'd love to romanticize just because it's one of those places you can see why you need to move on from a place like that. I love memories of games and these kind of old, no-frills, uh, uh, low-amenity stadiums. Right. To me, the, I love the hardcore fans and the quirky people who populate those kind of places. So whether it's Beloit, you know, Sam Lynn Stadium, I loved it there. They just feel, um, you know, seeing the Jamestown Jammers. Okay. Uh, I love a lot of those places too. Um, the places that are no longer with us that kind of see why you moved on, but at the same time, um, always love to get a glimpse into you know, baseball as it as it was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take this chance to cut to a break, and we'll be right back with Ben Hill right after this break. Welcome back, Ben. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening. Uh, do you remember Sean Banks? He was one of your job seekers that blogged for you at the winter meetings in 2014. I do. Um, I that's a, assuming there is a winter meetings again. You know, mm-hmm. We don't know about large group gatherings sure. uh, uh, for the time being, but. That's a feature I'd love to bring back for my winter meetings coverage. I stopped doing it just because it became too much to coordinate logistically with all the other stuff going on. But right. uh, I'd love to uh, you know, recruit people to um, aspiring people who want to break into the industry, and I would, I would recruit people uh, to, take, to, to keep a journal of their job-seeking experience, and I would run it on my blog. And uh, I do remember Sean, absolutely. Um, the years mix up, and I was trying to remember who else was in his class of job seekers, but um, I remember uh, communicating with him a lot. I mean, we still follow each other on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I, I know that he's a, uh, he has a strong, uh, he can speak Spanish, and he has mm-hmm. a strong uh, background in Dominican baseball, and uh, yeah. uh, like myself, a real sucker for wordplay and puns, and uh, yep. you know, would often try to engage me uh, on that level, on the wordplay level. And I gotta say, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Not to the competition, but you know, I usually have to, if someone comes at me with a pun, I'm going to answer. Yeah. Yeah, Sean, uh, later, I think it was right after those winter meetings, he became an intern for the Beloit Snappers, um, and he was kind of stadium operations and then dabbled um, with me in the marketing department, Um, and then he went on to work for Bradenton and Bowie, um, and now he's the general manager for a professional Ultimate Frisbee team. 
Twitter. The DC Breeze is what they're called. Nice. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how he got that gig, but um, yeah, it seemed to work out well for him. So, uh, in your travels, you always picked a designated eater when you uh, went to different stadiums because of your celiac disease. Uh, so who has been your favorite designated eater and what concessions item was the biggest hit on the blog? Yeah, that is, that is a good one. I feel like I was thinking about this earlier today. Did I write it down or did, did I get to, um, I might've forgotten to write it down, but there've been a lot, you know, minor league baseball is so much about the food. You know, I, when I had celiac disease, I had to go gluten free. So that's what led to the concept of a designated eater, someone who, you know, consumes the, 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 the ballpark food that I cannot. Right. Um, and there, it's, I don't, you know, maybe it'd be a bit of an overblown statement to call it a community of people who are designated eaters, but it is remarkable to me the number of people who I still follow, who I still get emails from, who are now, like, friends with each other, at least on Twitter, through this sort of, like, fraternity, or sometimes sorority, brother and sisterhood of uh, designated eaters. Yeah. Um, so I've uh, really enjoyed doing that. Um, I think back to last year, um, a guy named Jennings Compton, uh, we were at a, just, it, I like the absurdity of the concept too, because, you know, sometimes the team knows, you know, they know I'm coming and they're like, oh, let's get your designated eater and give a whole grand food tour or, you know, just go try every single thing. Sometimes the team like, oh, you know, they just leave me alone and don't really seem to care that I'm there. So sometimes it just me and some person I just met sort of walking around being like, yeah, I don't know, do you want to get a hot dog here? <laughs> so I was in a Potomac, uh, the Fitz, Fitzner Stadium, yeah. uh, the penultimate game of the entire uh, history of the Potomac Nationals because they're moving into the new ball. Yeah. I was a guy named Jennings Compton. And it was just like, this is already a pretty no-frills facility, and now they're playing their very last games and just everything's like half-price and on clearance mode. And I'm just kind of like, what, what are we going to do? Well, what are we even trying to highlight here? So <laughs> me and this dude, you know, and, and designated eaters are always up for it. So Jennings is like, well, let's let's invent uh, something. And so we bought a funnel cake and we bought a hamburger and uh, we uh, constructed a funnel cake burger that, you know, the Ooh. team didn't officially sell. But, uh, okay. you know, kind of made it happen. And I just kind of like that inventive spirit. So, yeah. you know, I, that was definitely it. You know, maybe I got El Paso on my mind, but uh, there's a guy named Daniel Acuna, I believe was his name, last year. Uh, great designated eater. I mean, they had, it's not just about the food, but, you know, drinks as well. Yeah. You know, and they have these drinks that are kind of like Bloody Mary's but they're non-alcoholic. But, but what you do is you get a beer and one of these drinks that's like tomato juice with like celery and beef jerky sticking out of it and all this like Ooh, ridiculous okay. stuff. And you get a beer, you walk around like double fisting and pouring the beer into this Bloody Mary like concoction. With, okay. Yeah, celery and beef jerky and hot sauce and all sorts of stuff. Interesting. And I really like to, to focus on, on that kind of stuff. And, the regional cuisine and the regional uh, quirks. Also, sure. last year in Vegas, you know, new ballpark in Vegas. That's like the hospitality capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So I had a guy named Ben Sachs, and he and I uh, just just seemed to go everywhere in the ballpark. And they they were the, the team was partnering with like local celebrity chefs to create like oh. ballpark specific like upscale hot dogs. Okay. Uh, so you know, we went through this whole like 
uh, upscale tour of, uh, <laughs> of hot dogs in Las Vegas. So okay. That went really well. Um, so in terms of one standalone favorite, I don't know, but it's just experiences like that, whether it's a new ballpark in Vegas with Ben, uh, whether it's uh, an old ballpark on his last legs with Jennings, um, just meeting someone and uh, just making the best out of whatever you got and uh, having fun with it and uh, going through the quintessentially or just to me it's just never not absurd to meet someone and then document them eating and then saying <laughs> goodbye it's just a really weird thing there's so much of it on my job that is weird that just became normal for me doing sure. it for so long but every time I go through an off season and I start a new season I always have this kind of anxiety and almost sense of like unreality or just total surrealness where I almost feel like my job isn't my job and has never been my job I made the whole thing up because it just seems <laughs> too ridiculous to be real yeah well I feel like that was most of my minor league baseball career honestly so um, yeah so let's discuss your visits to both Beloit and Delmarva when I worked at each team I worked completely different departments I was director of food and beverage when you came to visit in Beloit and I was communication services coordinator when you came and visited in Delmarva. Um, so I was probably running the video board at that point. So, and overseeing the press box and whatnot. Yeah, well, Beloit was, you know, 2013. Um, obviously, uh, Wall Ninja was a major standout yeah. of that. Um, that was the first full season I did a designated eater. I don't recall the name of the guy that I had, but, uh, it was, I, it was, I know who it was. It was John Pingle. I know him very yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back in those days, you know, Designated Eaters came on, you know, as I did it more and more and the concept gained more recognition and more people asking me how they could do it, you know, I kind of created a quote-unquote application process, mm-hmm. basically posting my itineraries and having people email me if they were interested. Sure. But back in the early days, I would just be like, I didn't know what I was doing. So usually I had to say to the team, hey, is there a fan around? So that's probably what happened to them, yeah. you know? You know, you or one of the other front office staffers was like, "Oh yeah, that guy will do it." And I'm yeah, like, cool. Yeah, and then you know, tap him on the shoulders like, "Hey, this is Ben. He wants you to eat." He's like, right, "Okay, you know, if I get a free food, free food out of it." But there was that, you know, that uh, that Wisconsin, that like quintessential, like the Wisconsin burger, the cheesy Wisconsin that had like, yeah. cheese curds and melted cheese on it. Yeah, it, on it, if I recall correctly, and there was a snappy yeah. burger. Yeah, the, so the snappy burger. Is a cheeseburger with a brat cut vertically and and laid on top of the burger. And the true Wisconsin burger is a cheeseburger with cheese curds and then nacho cheese on it as well. <laughs> well there you have it, yeah. Uh, so those stood out for food items. Uh, I remember that the team, I think it was uh, uh, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Natalie Toby right there? Yeah. Um, I remember she, uh, you know, older stadium, pretty limited concessions. I remember she taped gluten-free signs next to all the items on the concession menu that were gluten-free, and I felt like, oh, that's sweet, but, you know, kind of like, you didn't need to do that. (laughs) But it was just kind of like a funny memory. Right. Going to the concessions, and there had never been gluten-free signs there before, and there was all these taped gluten-free signs. (laughs) Uh, I remember that. I, I talked to Grace Phillips, who was uh, 99 years old at the time. Yeah. Weird, uh, with her cowbell, I did. Um, I, I wish I was a little later in my career interviewing her, because I would have turned it into a better story. I think at that point, I 
was a little unclear how to really turn my business into good feature stories, but she's like a quintessential person I want to write about. Sure. You know, a woman almost 100 years old who comes to every game, brings yeah. a cowbell. Um, maybe you can tell me, I, you know, I, I looked her up uh, the other, pretty recently, because I was posting about my visit to Boyd on Instagram as I'm doing kind of an archival retro, retrospective series. Okay. And I found an article on Grace Phillips that was in the wake of her 105th birthday. And Ooh. I was like, wow, that's awesome. And I didn't see an obituary for it. And in that case, she was, I think, 106 now. Yeah. And, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I the la- When I left Beloit, she was she was still alive and kicking, so I I'd have I'd have to ask around honestly. Yeah, I'm just curious. I love the fans that that yeah you know into triple digits into being a yeah. Terry uh, still. So I remember talking to, to Grace. Um, I, I also uh, visited uh, then league president uh, George Spelius in his office. You know, yeah, he was obviously Beloit, and I went to the flower shop. It was a Beloit floral that yeah. was. Uh, run by it had been in his wife's family for a couple generations and like mm-hmm. so his wife the league president uh, his wife and daughters you know all ran this family owned flower shop mm-hmm. um, so I found Beloit very charming in that way um, sure and uh, you know certainly talking to broadcasters the the team hotel and the the bar at the team hotel are kind of legendary or the <laughs> Broadway Inn or the Rogue Dog yep uh, Beloit, definitely, I, for whatever reason, ended up staying in South Beloit, Illinois. Okay. At what, what I believe was the Umpires Hotel, for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but So I did not stay at the legendary roadway, but I did go to the diner that's, like, next to it, whatever that sure. restaurant was called. Yep. What was that called? Uh, I... I... I don't know what the restaurant's called. I, I had only eaten there maybe two or three times, but it's good food, though, for sure. Yeah, I remember I got some gigantic breakfast skillet kind of thing. But, you know, look, I was only in Beloit one time one time seven years ago, and, yeah, it helps that I recently kind of went back and reread all my stuff because I'm doing this series on Instagram and then talking to you. Mm-hmm. But legitimately, that's a lot of good memories from a yeah. Place that I just went one time. I, I felt for as much as it was just like a small market team and an old kind of undistinguished ballpark, I felt there was a lot of uh, a lot to explore there. And I'm looking forward to going back to Beloit, where wherever that may be. Yeah, or, or not wherever it may be. I know where it is. <laughs> when, when, <laughs> okay. And what about what about your trip? Your last trip to Delmarva. Uh, Delmarva. That was a. I've been to Delmar- Delmarva twice. Like the most recent one was that was 2018, I believe. Mm-hmm. Was, that, was that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember it was a um, a Manny Machado uh, Star Wars night giveaway. Oh, uh, okay. Giveaway. Yeah. Um, and I remember talking to uh, Chris Bitters, the team GM yep. president. Yeah. Um, obviously, head honcho, and he was saying, "Look, we made him a stormtrooper." Because in case he had been traded before the bobblehead giveaway, um, then we could sell it as him like being like the enemy. But right. If he's still with us, then we're just just Manny Machado, and yeah. like, hey, no problem. And I was like, man, I never really thought of that, but I thought that was a smart way to, to get around <laughs> to get around that. Um, I remember, um, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia area where Scrapple was a thing, so Scrapple was also a thing in the yeah. Delmarva area, and I remember. Um, being shown 
the logos for the Scrapple alternate identity hadn't been unveiled yet. Okay. I wish I could write about that now, but uh, it was, uh, you know, they were going to unveil it later that month or the next month or whatever. Okay. But uh, certainly one of the few teams that I've ever had or seen uh, Scrapple, <laughs> you know, at yeah. the ballpark. I remember the first time I went to Delmarva, they actually had a Scrapple sandwich at the concession stands. I'm not, I'm not sure if they had that in 2018, but, you know, they were going to, they were about to unveil a Scrapple themed uh, alternate identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I also interviewed uh, Ryan Ripley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who uh, was on the team. And I remember him being a really, I mean, what do I know from a 15 minute interaction with somebody? But he struck me as a real nice down to earth guy. Yeah, he is. Um, I, I was impressed with him for that very limited interaction. And that, uh, you know, when you're Ryan Ripkin, I mean, talk about the ultimate blessing and curse. And sure. Your name opens doors in a way that, especially in the baseball world that most of us could only dream of but then at the same time it's almost impossible to establish your own identities right uh, I'm always interested in stories like that but uh, yeah I remember that uh, it was a, it was a good visit of course it was um, I had this vague memory of like uh, a player get hurt or something an ambulance like driving onto the field and taking a guy off the field oh um, and, after like an outfield collision or something like that was was that your most recent visit yeah okay um like through a door i remember it, yeah it's a different ballpark but i have a vague memory of like an outfield door like on the left field side yeah there there is one there ambulance driving just, I, I was like whoa i've never seen a direct on field uh ambulance pickup yeah um I do remember that. I I think yeah, two guys collided in the outfield, the center fielder and the left fielder, I believe. Um and they they did have to take the the um one guy to the hospital and he he ended up being okay, but in result, Curvin Mesquite who was on the Shorebirds hit a inside the park home run. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do remember that now. I didn't realize that was the game that you went to, but yeah, that was the, that was the game I was there. I remember getting word later that night that you know the guy in the hospital was you know quote unquote okay. I know yeah, it's all relative at that point. It was still good to hear because when you go off the field in the hospital, there's obviously going to be a part of you that you know expects the worst. But right. I remember it was just one of those quintessential minor league situations where you know you're trying to respect the gravity of the moment, but then you just also have a delay in 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 play mm-hmm. and the fans are kind of restless so there's like star it was star wars nights so yeah like, at the same time as you have like an ambulance coming down the field you have like star wars sound effects and clips on the video yes. board and if that's not my baseball i don't know what is sort of constant <laughs> juxtaposition of all these different things going on Okay, so just recently I made it available that people could text or leave voicemails for me and my guests, um, and we do have a couple questions from that. Um, in order to call, uh, leave a voicemail or text, the number is two zero two seven nine six TARP. So uh, the first question is a text. Question for Ben from Brian Stoltz of MILB.com. 
yeah. How have you dealt during the quarantine without my random singing and shouting at my computer screen? <laughs> well, I actually, uh, you know, just like um, fan cutouts, um, you know, at ballparks right now, we can't have fans in the game. I actually have a, a Ryan Stoltz cutout um, <laughs> that I sit next to here in my home office. Oh. The doubles in my bedroom. And, you know, he's a night shift worker, so I don't bring out the cutout until kind of like, you know, around 6 o'clock when I'm kind of starting to finish things up. And then I say, hey, man, how you doing? And, and then I go out in the living room and enjoy my night, and then he starts his uh, night shift. It's not weird at all. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is this will be the first voicemail I've ever gotten. So I actually didn't really think this through first but i am going to hold my phone up to my microphone um and it'll be close to your your um the speaker as well so that you can hear it so let me see here hi Bobby and ben this is paul caputo calling um as uh, we have discussed uh both bobby and ben we've discussed the collection of uh, Helmet Sundays that I have uh, in my basement on the shelf. Uh, uh, that is my favorite thing that I collect from minor league baseball games. And I'm curious with all of the many, 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 many games that uh, Ben has attended, does he have a favorite souvenir uh, from one of those games? Thanks, guys. It's a good question. Uh, Paul Caputo, he was recently... Um Profiled in an MILB.com story uh, about his uh, Helmet Sunday collection. Okay. Uh, people have asked me that through the years, and in hindsight, hindsight, you know, when I started my job, and for many years after I began it, I didn't really know what I was trying to do, and I still, in a sense, don't. But it just never occurred to me to be so, um, you know, methodical or ritualistic with bringing a certain item from every ballpark. So mm. now I wish I always had, like, one thing that from every ballpark. Yeah. You know? Because I did these trips with very little, you know, I always tried to be carry-on, you know, no-check luggage. Sure. Uh, I always tried to be minimal. So, you know, sometimes teams would try to give me stuff, and I'd be like, I don't mean that. You know, I've left stuff in bobbleheads in hotel rooms <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, so there's never been, like, that one thing. That said, I do have a whole lot of random minor league stuff. And one thing I've always kept through the years, uh, they don't have a collection of per se, but I have tons of notebooks from my travels. And the notebooks are always filled with the end of the night uh, coupons that staff hangs, uh, hands out yes. to fans as they leave. So I do have a, uh, I don't want to say one of the best, but no, I will say one of the best. I don't want to say the best. But I do have a great collection of post game handout coupons for like, you know, Wendy's. Um, you know, convenience stores such as Wawa, um, okay. Dunkin' Donuts, you know, good for a free coffee, good for a free burger, stop in here. You know, it almost makes me want to try to go, it'd be too tedious now, but um, that's one of the things I like, like random things like like that for sure. And I've got a lot of that. That'd, that'd be fun. That's a new project. Okay. I'm going to take, away, take out all the coupons. All right. Uh, Paul Caputo, former guest of this podcast as well. So... Uh, so Ben, we're gonna we're wrapping up here. Where can the listeners find you on social media? Uh, they can find me uh, 
at Ben's Biz, you know, Twitter is, uh, as I said, you know, I had Ben's Biz blog for many years, and it's certainly still worth visiting if you like minor league baseball, but I do not mm -hmm. update on the blog itself anymore. But uh, Ben's Biz blog is still a great source of minor league road trip stuff. Uh, but now for that day-to-day -day kind of uh, minor league baseball news feed that used to be the blog, I think Twitter is the closest thing. So yeah. this is a long way of saying on social media, Twitter, Ben's Biz, B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. And Instagram, someone is squatting on Ben's Biz, so I can't use it. Ooh. I'm just trying to hold it for ransom, but um, never going to get my money, my big minor league bucks. But Instagram, <laughs> the Ben's Biz, T-H-E-B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. The Ben's Biz on Instagram, uh, Ben's Biz on Twitter. And uh, all my stuff now is on, all my writing is uh, on MILB.com uh, slash Ben's Biz. All okay. in one place, MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. Perfect. Okay. And we end every episode with the same question. Uh, this may be tough for you because you've been to so many ballparks. What has been the best walk-up or warm-up song you've heard in your baseball career, and whose was it? That's a very good question. It all blends together. I, I don't even know if I was at a game for this, but I know I wrote about it. Um, Josh Harrison, um, you know, before he made the majors in Altoona, and I, you know, he came up through the Pittsburgh system. Mm -hmm. But he had a web, uh, a rap song written by his brother that was, you know, this higher energy hip hop track written by his brother that was kind of customized for him. So I always thought that was awesome. I remember it had some sort of chorus or refrain in the beginning that was just kind of like, looky, looky, looky me. Look at me, looky me. We got, I got to look at it. Look at the Josh Harrison hip-hop uh, walk-up song written by his brother. So I always liked that just because it had such a personal story. And I was thinking about this earlier, and I also just saw when I was in uh, Salt Lake, Salt Lake Bees, you know, big ballpark, triple-A. Yeah. And so it was kind of, the sound is kind of cavernous. And uh, his name, Caleb, uh, Caleb Cowart, is that his name? Cowart? Oh. C-O-W-A-R-T okay. Caleb Coward okay. uh, had uh, Lake of Fire from Nirvana's Unplugged album okay. which is a song I absolutely love it's one of the three Meat Puppets covers on Nirvana's Unplugged album and I remember just hearing that just sort of echoing out through this AAA ballpark um, it's just a great little acoustic riff uh, really good groove uh, just hearing that I was like man that's a cool walk-up song I wasn't expecting to hear any Meat Puppet covers from a Nirvana's Unplugged album was a walk-up song, but, you know, thumbs okay. up for that. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, just thank you so much for coming on to the Pulling Tar Podcast, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. And so is our conversation, is that a metaphor for Pulling Tar? Yeah. Is, is there, well, just, just the Pulling Tarp is... That's the epitome of working in minor league baseball. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so when I was doing a podcast where I interview other people that have worked in minor league baseball, I had to I had to incorporate pulling tarp somehow. So, so hence pulling tarp podcast. All right. Well, I hope we've uh, covered the field. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll we'll uh, chat soon. You've listened to the Pulling Tarp Podcast. 
distributed by Stoveleg Media. Make sure you check out our page at stoveleg.com to learn more about Bobby and the rest of the show. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation.